Furman. Hello. You're on tour at the moment. I am. I am. This is a rare day off for me. Okay. Um, so it's, it's really quite nice to be here. How do you find being on tour? Weird. It's my second uh, tour and it's exhausting because last time I went, I took a support act that would open and then I'd just come on and do the Edinburgh show. Whereas this year, the first half is sort of my favourite bits and then the second half is this year's Edinburgh show. So I'm almost on stage for two hours. And it's a, I wanted to do that because, you know, I've done four Edinburgh shows and I sort of know how to pace an hour and all that kind of thing. So to try and do two hours in an evening and actually sort of spend an evening with an audience was a bit of a challenge and I thought it'd be fun. What difference does it make? I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Well, I mean, you've got to come on and you've got to go off twice. So it's like you've spoken to a lot of comedians and they've got their opening bits and they've got closing bits. And those are often the hardest things to find, you know, because you want to come on and, and crack them early and get them on side and you want to leave to a nice round of applause. So you've got to do that twice and, and you've got to do it in different ways. Um, but what's cool is when you go off at half time, when you come back, you're familiar with people's names, so you can back ref stuff, and it's a little, it's almost like you made friends in the first half, so the second half's a little bit easier, you know, it's a bit more free flowing. So, just to explain what you do for oh, anyone yeah. that hasn't seen you. Yeah. Well, uh, I, uh, I'm a magician, and I, uh, I found a way to do magic tricks on the comedy circuit. <laughs> I don't, comedy magician, I think, sounds naff. Comedian's a bit of a lie. So, yeah, I mean, to be honest, as comedian ass, I say I'm a magician, and magician ass, I say I'm a comedian. Oh, so really? I just, but I, uh, yeah, I'm a magician, that's my thing. My, my bottom line is I've got to go out and um, fool people a little, a little bit, I think. What do you say to strangers when people ask you what you do? I, like, I say I'm a student. Do In the bank, really? I say I'm a student, yeah. Because, I mean, if, if you say you're a comedian, that's, you know, it's tell us a joke. Say you're a magician, it's even worse, because they go, really? And then you say, yeah, and they say, okay, well, show us a trick. I mean, it's just awful, so I just say I'm a student. If, if people ever do say show us a trick, do you have one that you whip out? Or no, you just say, no. Oh, I, that's like, no, I would never do anything like that. I know guys that like carry packs of cards and stuff around and whip it out at a social thing, but when it's your job, you know, you just want to get away from it when you're not working. Did you used to do that, though, when you were little, when you were first starting out? Um, no, actually, I've never I've never been at social gatherings, like family occasions. My dad would go, I'll show grandma and granddad a couple of tricks, and I would do that at Christmas time, and that was fine, but it was always like a little bit, you know, I'd have to go upstairs, and I'd set up my little act, and I'd come down with my table, and I'd do my little <laughs> show, right? I would never go out and have stuff prepared like, uh, oh, I'm going to whip this stuff out. I'm going to rock out this new trick tonight right. at the pub. I wouldn't, you know, it's just not me. You didn't try and impress girls with it? Uh, there was a period where I thought that the tricks were going to get the chicks, but it turns out they don't like card tricks. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh. How old were you when you started? I uh, got a magic set when I was about eight for a Christmas present, and it was a Fisher-Price magic set. And, I mean, that year when I got it... Everyone had to sit through my little magic act. You know, I, <laughs> this obnoxious child making aunties and uncles that probably didn't care sit down and watch a terrible vanishing egg trick or something well, like that. Is it one of those things where you get bitten by it? And you're like, I think, it? you know what, you know, whenever 
people ask how I got into it, it's always the same thing, you know, it's always the magic set and stuff. And I think that's a common thing. I think most people, boys and girls, have a sort, they get a trick pack of cards, they get a magic set. It's something I think that happens, and for one reason or another, I just sort of stuck with it. Like, I got a guitar, but I just couldn't make that work. But the magic tricks just sort of, I don't know, seem natural. And then didn't you win school talent shows? Oh, yeah. Twice on the trot, record yet to be beaten. <laughs> I'm ho- I was hoping for years that they were going to rename the Assembly Hall, the Pete Furman Assembly Hall, <laughs> in honour of my double whammy win. It might still happen. No, they're going to knock it down. Oh. This is the thing. I'm hoping in the new one I might get like a bronze bust or something like that, but I'm not holding my breath. Who were you up against in the talent show? Oh, I don't know, like uh, someone doing gymnastics and uh, the recorder group or something like that. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't stiff competition. That was in secondary school, but in primary school... I'd done a couple of shows and I I really liked... Maybe that was part of the reason that I stuck with it, partly because I had this special thing that no one else did and also having, like, a secret as a kid is quite a a nice thing. And being able to fool an adult as a kid with with a magic trick is cool. That's Um, like a superpower. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. When you're a kid, it feels really nice. And then, yeah, when I went to secondary school, they had a talent competition and I put together my little... My dad's still got the video. Maybe really? I'll, maybe no I'll put, it on put it on YouTube. Or, oh, yeah, maybe the website. I don't know. Oh. Maybe. <laughs> what <laughs> maybe was your not. hair like? My hair? Shot back and sides, I think. I can't remember. <laughs> I know I was in a dinner suit, a little mini... Di- looked like I'd just come off a wedding cake. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Did that get you more or less credibility at school? You know what? Actually, yeah. It, I say it was cool to have a secret and have this thing that no one else could do. And then suddenly you go to secondary school and puberty hits and... I kind of dropped it for a little while because I did feel it was a little bit geeky and then picked it up mid to late teens and it was then that I really got into card tricks and sleight of hand and all that and sort of taking it a little bit seriously like I was a bit of an artist you know what I mean it wasn't about the glittery boxes it was about pure you you know with just a couple of coins and a few cards what mysteries will unfold you know (laughs) did you used to get your friends going oh make my teacher disappear and you'd go no it's not like that yeah (laughs) they always yeah Uh, people used to come up to me uh, in the corridor house tricks better than yours oh but after school am I right in thinking you wanted to be an actor for a bit yeah I did yeah, I uh, did a theatre degree at university, which I think a lot of comics do, don't they? It's like a Mickey Mouse thing that you just do to do it. But did and you actually think you'd go into the theatre? Yeah, I really I really liked acting. And at that point in my life, the magic was something I was doing as a part-time job. So rather than working in a bar serving drinks, I uh, would work in a bar and just go around and do card tricks for people and oh, stuff. Oh, seriously? What, yeah. the bar would employ you? Yeah, you? yeah, or a restaurant. So, like, say it was, like, a busy family restaurant or something, they had, like, a bit of a queue for people coming in or people were waiting a long time for food, so they would send over Mr Magic and I'd do five, ten minutes of stuff to just appease them. So I was doing that whilst I was doing my um, degree in theatre and then I wanted to do a postgrad acting diploma or something like that. And I was in Middlesbrough taking stock and I saw this ad online for this TV magic show that they were making. And I sent in a showreel and went down for a meeting and got the gig. And the show was... It was called Monkey Magic. And that was probably 2002, 2003, something like that. And it was on Channel 5. It was on Channel 5. What was the premise of the show? So the premise was me and there was three other guys and it was sort of... It was around the time that Jackass and Trigger Happy and all that kind of stuff was happening. And the premise was these four magicians that just kind of hang out and what would those guys do? In a kind of a jackassy way. You know, they'd be doing tricks for one another, trying to outdo one another. I mean, it was a cool show. But what was weird in, in hindsight is doing the TV show prior to really having a live act 
and a reputation on any kind of circuit. I was working live, but it was very much private parties and stuff like that. Not on a stage doing any kind of stand-up-y stuff. It was more that close quarters stuff, close-up magic. And did you get famous off it? Like, would you be... Well, only Channel 5 famous. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when it was on, occasionally. I mean, we did two series and stuff. And And it got nominated for a British Comedy Award. Yeah, yeah, it was... At the time, it was like crazy, you know? I was like 21 and suddenly having been in Middlesbrough, working part-time for my dad selling cars. Were you a proper, like, used car sales? Yeah, that's what my dad does. That's the family... Thing, I think he's a bit disappointed that I'm not flogging the motors. Did you think you might go into that at any point? I never dismissed it because, yeah, you just don't know, do you, in this performing arts business? But presumably as well, in terms of, you know, if you're doing magic, you have to have a certain amount of patter and you have to be able to kind of get people on side and and get them trusting you, which is... Deceive them, is that what you're saying, Marsha, in broad terms? (laughs) But there are some similarities to selling used cars. Yeah, only one owner. Uh-uh. <laughs> Only 60,000 miles on the clock. Uh-uh. But a little of the NLP, Darren Brown yeah, type sort of yeah. convincing people. Yeah, just just being able to talk to people, really. Right. Interact. Sorry, yours is a much nicer way of putting it. <laughs> anyway, so you were doing the used car salesman. So yeah. doing, and then making the TV show. That's the sort of going from one to the other was just crazy. So we made a couple of series and, and then Channel 4 decided to make a late night magic show called Dirty Tricks. And I got the gig and was running up some material because it was going to be, it's a studio show, so doing tricks, live audience. I'd written a routine. I thought, well, maybe I should sort of try this out. I'd always like stand-up and that kind of thing. And The magic that I was doing, I'd always made it light-hearted. I'd never taken it too seriously. So I took one of those routines that I was working on for the Channel 4 thing down to the club. I just really liked it. I mean, it didn't go great. You know, I could see that this was going to take some work to get good at. But I just really liked the instant gratification and the difference from doing the other live magic stuff that I'd been doing, which was the close-up stuff, where you sort of felt like you were bothering people because you would approach them and say, can I show you a trick? Whereas here, you're in a room, everyone's facing the right way, the lights are on you, the sound, you get a nice introduction and you're there and you've got their attention, at least initially, and then you've got to hold it, right? So I just thought this is something I really want to explore. So it was after that that I started on the circuit. Was it hard getting gigs at first? I emailed everyone. You know, I went through Time Out and for open spots or whatever and found all the comedy clubs that were in London and emailed them and said, I've just done a programme on Channel 5 and you might be aware of my work. And it's like, yeah, might be able to give you five minutes unpaid in ten months. Right. <laughs> That's what's great about the circuit is it's honourable and everyone's got to earn their spurs. There's no fast track, there's no shortcut. And the bookers know, you know, you've been on telly, so what? You know, can you actually do it? So, yeah, I had to slowly but surely build that trust. And there were a few clubs initially in town that really supported me. But, as you say, I'm a magician. Really? That's not for us. There's still clubs that are very purists. It needs to be man and mic. Some clubs certainly won't take me, won't take a character act, won't take a musical comedy act. It's weird. Really weird? Yeah, it's odd. But then there's others that say, you know what, this is, your act's going to sit really good because the opening acts of stand-up, the closing is, we'll put you in the middle and break it up a little bit, be a bit different. So yeah, it wasn't a struggle to get work. So you were doing a load of gigs and then you took a show to Edinburgh. Yeah, that sort of happened rather weirdly actually because I was at the stage on the circuit where I'd, I had sort of 20 minutes, half an hour. You can kind of work forever on that if it's good because you only need to do 20 minutes in a club. But I wanted to push myself a little bit, so I took a little theatre thing above a pub in Camden called the Etc. And I put together an hour show just to see if I could do it and also to see what that felt like. And some people at the venue saw it and mentioned it to the underbelly 
um, the Edinburgh venue and those guys got in touch with my manager and said, would Pete be interested in taking a show to Edinburgh? We'd be interested in promoting it. So that's how that happened. Edinburgh wasn't really on my agenda. It, like all of this stuff, I've never had like a five-year plan. It just kind of happened. And that was 2007, I think, was my first one. And it was great because there's not many guys on the circuit doing magic tricks. And in Edinburgh doing kind of a solo magic show, I mean, Jerry was probably around. Jerry Sadowitz. Right. Um, so it was um, it was good and there was a nice buzz and the show went really well and got good crits and stuff. And then, you know, come back, to a, did a night at the Bloomsbury. It was great. And then you get bitten by the bug. So then you start writing the second show and all that kind of thing. And then after the second show, mm. you went to Montreal. Yeah, that was rad. Yeah, that was brilliant. Which is the, it's the Just for Last Festival. Just for Last. That was just before the second year. So the Montreal people had come to see me the first year. Right. So it was the July before my second Edinburgh. And it was amazing. You're in a dressing room with Judd Apatow and there's a guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm and it's just like, wow. When Adam Hills was on this podcast, he had just come back from Montreal at the time mm. and he was saying how it's very TV and it's very like people come in and go, yeah, we'll book you for three minutes, okay. Yeah. It, did you find that? It is business, yeah, it's totally business. So much more than like Edinburgh. All of the acts and managers and uh, the TV people are all in this fancy pants hotel in the middle of town and everything is taken very seriously you get like limos to all the gigs and stuff no it's way. all oh yeah it's all like business class yeah it's crazy so I did like a couple of club shows and stuff. They do this show called Britcom. All the British acts do this show. And then you get to do one of the televised galas, which is in this big like 1500 seat theatre. And the host was the guy from Entourage, Jeremy Piven. Whoa. Yeah, it's weird. Please welcome from Middlesbrough, <laughs> Magic Guy, Pete how did, Furman. How did it go? It was good. It's all a bit of a blur. You know what? I mean, there was a couple of... The, the early shows that I did in Montreal, my shtick is I kind of take the mickey out of what I do. Magic is geeky and does annoy people a little bit, or some people. So I think to take the sting out of it, if you can poke fun, is a good thing. But then you've also got to bring it back round to a trick that bamboozles people and astonishes them because you are a magician and that's your job, right? So I was doing like these stupid tricks, dumb kind of obvious tricks but I think the Canadian just thought they were dumb and obvious. I don't think they quite saw my ironic slant at first, so I had to work on that second and third show just to kind of hit home the fact that I actually knew these things were a little bit naff, and that's the joke. Go on, guys. <laughs> Loosen up. <laughs> How do you do the stuff that you do in a 1500-seater thing? You just got to pick big tricks and uh, move largely. What kind of things? Because you're not so much of the soaring the ladies and horses. No, yeah, no, and I would never want to pay an assistant because my margins are so, so small anyway on this act <laughs> I, uh, I you know what I can't remember the type of stuff oh they had video screens as well at the gala which always helps but you're right you know when you are in those big rooms it's a consideration one thing I like to do is um, you know because when you're doing you know magic and, and comedy or, or jokes or whatever to get laughs it's not necessarily one liners it can be situational or you get a punter up from the audience and you can have a few laughs with them so that's a good thing to do you know you get a couple of people up and suddenly this act feels a little bit bigger so yeah that's that's one way to do it and also the punters on stage verify that everything you're doing is legit 
So even if people can't see perfectly, if you say to someone, okay, here's a cup, have a look inside, examine it, is it empty? It's so much better than just kind of flashing it around the auditorium and it's all shadowy and they can't really see anything in there anyway. Have you done other gigs in North America? I did a a show for Sky where I travelled around and met magicians in different countries. That was the secret world? Secret world of magic, yeah. We did New York, Vegas and Los Angeles. So I did a little bit there. Yeah, it's, it's. I'd love to end up in Vegas. Would you? Yeah. Not now, but as like an older guy. Right. You know, like my twilight years. Yeah. Because you can do this job, as long as you can talk and stand up and do whatever you need to do, you can do this job. So it'd be great to be 60 and have some sort of mansion out in the desert and then just come in twice daily to do your little gig in the casino. Well, Penn and Teller do mm. their show in Vegas. They've been right? there for like 10 years. Mm. I remember yeah. being kind of surprised about that just because they're not, you know, like you hear Celine Dion has a Vegas residency, it's yeah. not a surprise, but Penn and Teller, because they're kind of so mm. off the wall, it's not just like family fun. Yeah, absolutely. But it feels like there's a lot that you're kind of in the same bracket of theirs in terms of the sort of magic you do, that that there's a lot of humour to it, but yeah. also there's a lot of like, no, oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As well. Uh, well, they were really, I suppose they've shaped me more than anyone. When I was on a kid, obviously Paul Daniels was on telly a lot. I used to watch the Tommy Cooper reruns and things like that. And then suddenly I'm like 17 watching this Penn and Teller series called The Unpleasant World of Penn and Teller, which was on Channel 4 late night. And it's like, it blew my mind a little bit because you realise, wow, it can be like this. And it was smart and edgy and a bit naughty. And, and yes, yeah, some of the stuff was gross and watch through your fingers. And, and it just sort of made me think there are other ways to do this. And yeah, I guess that has informed the kind of things that I do. But it's also the material that I pick is stuff that I think is going to go down well in the environment in which I work, you know, so like in a club where it's a weird dynamic, you can't have anything that's got a lot of set up, you've got to cut to the chase really quickly, attention span is short, and I'm working at a different rhythm to a comic, you know, a comic's got like a laugh line coming like every 15 to 20 seconds, whereas a magic trick's a different kettle of fish. So I do a thing with needles through my arm and there's blood and I pound a nail into my face and all this kind of part magic, part sideshow stunty stuff. But you meld that with the jokes and the humour and and hopefully, you know, here's this guy who we're having a laugh with and he's doing this stuff that I can't quite believe. And is it real or is it not? That grey area is interesting, you know, because I'm a magician, but maybe I am just putting these needles through my arms because it looks so real. How do you hold their attention through those slower bits? I can be a little bit more indulgent in my Edinburgh show and in the touring show, you know, because they've come out for an evening's entertainment. It's not like you've got to hit them hard in 20 minutes as you would in a club. So in a club, I would keep it pretty short and snappy and and make sure that no trick is running you know longer than a couple of minutes and uh, have more kind of gags in there and then uh, lay back on that a little bit in the hour show and pace it out and have sections that aren't so kind of joke heavy there's a bit more theatrical maybe what about with this show that you're doing this longer show and we're doing say a new edinburgh show every year how does it work in terms of material like how do you keep it fresh is it that you're constantly inventing new tricks or is it that there's a finite amount in the well, world that you the, could well do? there is a finite amount i mean when you actually break it down to its most basic form there's only a handful because there's like making something appear something disappear two items change places you think of something i couldn't possibly know I'm going to tell you what it is. I mean, that's all Darren does. Think of something I couldn't possibly know. I'm going to tell you what it is. And he's done like, I don't know, three or four two-hour shows. That's it. (laughs) So everything's like variations on that. So I always start with a premise first. Like one of the weirdest things I did in my first Edinburgh show was I wanted to blend up a mouse in a food processor. That's the idea. So I want to blend up a mouse in a food processor 
and uh, then what do I do? All right, well, I'll drink the guts and then I'll regurgitate the mouse and it's alive. Okay, that's great. So I'm sitting around a table with some magic friends and stuff and we sort of, how could that be done? Well, we could maybe just do it because they're only a couple of quid each. (laughs) Joking. But, uh, (laughs) you know, you sort of think about how it might be done and that's, that's great, kind of thrashing it out, you know, figuring it out from scratch and you make like a prototype and then you have someone make a proper one and, uh, you take it out and realise it's not going to fool anyone, so you have to remake it. I mean, there's a lot of that. Do you have an official prop maker? I have a few guys that do different things, yeah. Right. So, like, one guy's really good at, like, metal, one guy's good at wood. So what, you go to them and say, I, I need a fake cup of tea. Yeah, but, uh... it's really weird stuff, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, there are these theatrical prop makers that make all these these weird things. I actually had a really <laughs> weird conversation with Tim Vine, because, you know, Tim uses a lot of kind of sight-gaggy things, and... Uh, on his last tour, he phoned up about one thing and another thing, and he must have some deal with the guy where he pays a certain amount of money for three props, and he only wanted two. So he goes, oh, just give me, um, I don't know, like a, an oversized rasher of bacon. <laughs> and he said to me, I've had this rasher of bacon on stage with me the whole tour, and I'm only just finding out what the joke is. He just, <laughs> he just, he just got it to sort of fill the order. And now he's trying to figure out what to do with it. It'd be a great way of getting uh, presents for people. Yeah. You get the person who has everything. Absolutely. And absolutely enormous. But all know. the props means that I have to have my... Uh, I've got like a storage unit, which is a little bit like a, an Aladdin's cave full of boxes and swords. And it's not full of that. It's full of flight cases and <laughs> bits of paper. You mentioned Darren Brown. Yeah. He, you've written a book. Yeah. Which is... Tricks to Freak Out Your Friends, yeah. And he wrote the forward in there. He did, yeah. Are you, like, buds with him? Or? We're, bu- we're buds, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're mates. Yeah, he... Um, when I f- moved to London to make that first TV show, he was working in London on his early... This is prior to Russian Roulette and all that stuff, which sort of was the big thing for him. Uh, but he was making some early shows. He was living in Bristol at the time, but was staying in London to make the show. And we, there was a few of us and we shared a flat. And so we had all these kind of magic guys living in this little bedsit flat and we were all making our magic shows. But I think what he has done is fantastic. I mean, he's sort of taken magic in a completely different direction. And, you know, in the way that Blaine came along and and suddenly it's like, we've not seen this before. Darren's exactly the same. And now he's embracing the fact that, you know, he's saying he's a magician and stuff, which I think he kept a little bit quiet at first well he didn't keep it quiet he just didn't say that that was what he was doing it's psychology and blah 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 and when your eyes go up and to the left it means this and when they go down into the right it means that but now he's sort of saying that he's using that as well as sleight of hand and misdirection etc one of the things about him mm. which was really something i was thinking about you when i was kind of reading up about things is that david blaine obviously is amazing and yeah. changed the perception of magic in here and in the u.s but he's so serious yeah but actually with darren brown i think people think he He's very serious. Yes. I've read his book. Uh, I absolutely loved it. it. It kind of changed my life a bit in that I've always been terrible at remembering names. Right. I thought it was a life sentence. And now if I make the effort, I'm amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with the stuff that you do, I think people kind of go, well, we like that kind of magic. But we, especially Brits, they don't like people that take themselves seriously. Well, that's it. I mean, if you look at magicians, like David Copperfield is huge in America. And he came and tried to crack the UK did a couple of shows and we just didn't go for it at all because the wind machine and the blousy shirt and the smoke and the quiff and all that it's just you know there's no you're not a real person and you're not you know there's no sort of self-deprecation 
I mean, Darren does, you know, we see his live show, Darren's like full of mischief and he, you know, he cracks the odd joke and all that kind of thing. And although what he does is amazing, there's some levity with it as well. You know, it's sort of, he doesn't take himself too seriously, I suppose is what I'm saying. And Blaine and Copperfield both did that. And I don't think they meant a light to the British public. And then Darren, Cooper, Daniels in his early days when he first came on the scene you know you get this guy he's kind of taking the mickey and he can be the fall guy and he's not afraid to laugh at himself that's what we like do you think if you ever went to America to do your Vegas you'd be mm. a bit more shiny shirts and, maybe uh... I'd have to jazz it up a little bit yeah <laughs> get some ruffles and uh, <laughs> some big lapels and a wind machine yeah and a tiger <laughs> and some ladies in uh, spangly leotards that would be awesome <laughs> <laughs> we'll make that happen as well as the TV shows you mentioned you've done some kids shows I did yeah I did a, a show for uh, children's TV I'd done two shows one was called Stakeout and one was called uh, Wait For It and they were both kind of game showy quiz showy things which was cool you know they just called and they said would you be interested and I up until that point all of the TV shows that I'd done had been magic shows so suddenly you don't have to come up with any tricks you don't have to write any jokes although you have to sort of be humorous you, you know they give you a script and you turn up and you do the thing it was a sweet little gig do you ever get kids coming to your live shows well that's the thing I mean because those shows obviously don't reflect what I'm doing live and the fact that people see magic show and sometimes they think it might be a children's show we have to be quite careful and plaster all over the publicity stuff no under 14s and you know we just have to keep that in check it's not been a problem I think we've done like 10 or 11 dates so far and maybe we had to send one little boy away but I went out and said hi to him before the show and you know I'm really sorry but you know whatever did you so do some tricks for him? No, forget it. <laughs> we had to refund his ticket he wasn't getting anything <laughs> um, I guess if you had you know a six year old and you're blending up it's mice not, yeah it's, it's a little bit Shocking. But then haven't you upset grown-ups with that one? Was it that one? Yeah, that was the first Edinburgh doing the mouse in the blender. That was when the lady stormed the stage. She was really pissed off. What happened? Well, so I turn on the blender and I'm holding the mouse above the thing and I drop it in and she... Oh my... No, 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 no. Stands up in the audience. Drunk as well. No, no. I'm like, what? And we have a little bit of stuff. She comes up the aisle of the um, theatre... And up on stage, pointing a finger at me, shouting, getting right in my face. I'm like looking at the text. They're just like going, I don't know. And uh, eventually we got some security guys who got her out. Then she walked into another show and started <laughs> causing a fuss. I mean, I think it was more that she was just hammered than taking offence at the trick. It's a trick. It's a magic show. Of course I'm not blending up a mouse. But then haven't you made people faint in the past? Yeah, that was the needles in the arm trick. I was doing a club and a massive guy in the front, huge, about six foot wide, and I'm doing the thing and the blood starts to come out of my arms and he just falls off his chair, just out, out. I thought he died, (laughs) seriously. You hear about Pete Furman, he killed a fella. (laughs) They they got him outside and they're like wafting him on the pavement outside. How did you have to just carry on with the show? Well, as best I could. I mean, you know, they, they sort of... Is he okay? Oh, yeah, he's just got a thing about blood. So they get him outside and then someone gets word back to the stage. Oh, he's all right, he's come round. Were people whipping he's... out their mobiles and filming you oh. in case it went on the news? Luckily not. <laughs> so your tour is going on at the moment and it, you've got a show in London at the Bloomsbury yeah. on the 11th of November. Which I'm excited about. Yeah, I, I think that'll be a good one. But before that, I've got dates around the UK. And all of the dates are up on your website? On my website. Should I name check it? Yes. Should I do that? Okay. Do it. So it's petefurman.co.uk. 
pete.co.uk. The spelling of that is p-e-t-e-f-i-r-m-a-n.co.uk. Pete Furman, thank you so much. Thank very much. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis-White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.